Okay, everyone, today's episode was recorded at and brought to you by Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Raven Sound Studio is a professionally equipped audio production facility offering recording, mixing, and mastering services throughout northern Arizona and surrounding areas. Whether you are looking to cut a demo, record your next single, or have a full album produced, Raven Sound Studio has the tools and skills you need to get the job done. For more information, head to www.ravensoundstudio.com to book a session or schedule a tour. Welcome to The Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey everybody, I am so thrilled to share today's guest with you. She is just charming and enchanting and tough as nails, and she has been a mogul in the music industry and really stood out for women everywhere as an example of somebody who can do incredible things in a business that tends to be run by men. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Juanita Copeland has been in Nashville since 1990 and worked for Mercury Records, Almost Sounds Records, Pioneer Music Group, GMF Music, and Hippo Productions, in addition to her time as president and general manager of the Sound Emporium in Nashville. A lifelong lover of all music, she brings a passion to her work that is second to none. After hours, she also still provides production assistant services to several well-known Nashville producers, artists, and engineers. She brings a very well-rounded plethora of experience to her position as president, COO, and general manager. And to quote Robert Plant, Juanita is always cheery and makes you feel so welcome whenever you are at the Sound Emporium. She has managed to make the Sound Emporium one of Nashville's busiest studios, running 80 to 90% booked at any given time. This at a time when other studios in town are being leveled to make parking garages or condos. She also has a reputation for training the best engineers in town. Her management style and leadership are the main reasons the studio continues to thrive to this day. She treats all clients like family and creates such a great positive vibe for them to record down to the smallest of details. Projects recorded at the Sound Emporium recently earned six Grammy Awards in 2016, one in 2017, and one in 2018. She is very well respected and considered to be an industry leader when it comes to successful management of a commercial recording facility. She first came to Sound Emporium in 1995 to work with Garth Fundus and Almo Sounds Records, which was housed at Sound Emporium. When the label closed in 1998, she continued to work for Garth Fundus until he sold the studio in 2011. The new owner kept her on just as the accountant for the remainder of 2011, but brought her back as studio manager in 2012 after the two managers he had hired performed poorly, creating a huge loss at the end of 2011. With a lot of hard work and tenacity, Juanita and her staff brought the longtime clients back and garnered new ones. This turned things around so that by 2013, they were back on top as one of Nashville's most sought-after destinations for those seeking a top-notch recording facility. She has brought new genres to the studio and continues to not just survive in this crazy business, but thrive. The Sound Emporium is not just her job, it's her life. She guards the legacy and the history of the studio with fierce pride and shares it with all who are interested. If you'd like to learn more about Juanita Copeland, please see our show notes for links to social media accounts and website. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. I am so beyond excited for our guest. She is a mogul. She's a badass. She is just the best light of energy in a room. She does the coolest stuff ever. And um, I had the huge, immense honor of getting to know her when I was recording my last EP. Juanita Copeland is here with us today. Hi, Juanita. Hi. She um, runs the Sound Emporium in Nashville, and I, we can get into all of that because I don't even know if that's the appropriate way to describe you. But let's just start with saying hello, and then you can fill us all in and all your brilliance and genius and the correct title that I should call you. Um, well, they, they just jump a bunch of names in there, so, you know, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> let's start at the very beginnings of you. Where were you born, and what was your family life kind of like as a young little person, a tiny Juanita? Okay. Tiny Juanita is actually native Tennessean. My entire family was born in East Tennessee over in the Crossville area. Um, and my dad was in the service, so we didn't stay. My mother would always go back to Crossville to have babies. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so how, like many, she wanted us how many babies are there? I had an older sister who passed away in 2004. I'm sorry. Um, and I have an, a younger brother. So there's two of us left. And then um, after my mother passed away, we found out that I had a sister that she put up for adoption in between my older sister and me. So I found a new sibling. So I have an older sister now. Wow. Well, that is yeah. sure an interesting surprise for sure. Yeah, it was. Uh, ooh, OK, um, you know, uh, literally a week after my mother passed away, my brother and I got a letter from the post adoption unit from the state of Tennessee. And in the state of Tennessee, it's kind of mutual consent. Like since we told him, well, I told him my brother didn't have any interest in finding out who she was or anything, but I did. So um, I reached you know, signed all the paperwork and paid them my $500 or whatever. And, um, cause you know, they got to get their money. I mean, yeah. If so, you want to know who your siblings are, you got to pay for that. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and she was looking for us for health information because she was having a lot of health issues. In our first conversation, she said, I don't really care about having a relationship. I just want some health questions answered. And I said, sure. And then when we met, I walked up to Cracker Barrel and she said, well, it was really important for me to find out if this was hereditary or self-imposed. And she looked at me and she said, it's self-imposed. <laughs> so anyway, so I have um, a younger brother and an older sister. And uh, we lived in Hawaii and Germany when I was a kid. So I kind of formed who I was outside of the United States. And by the time I was four years old, I was already in preschool because in Germany, they're really big on education. So as soon as you're four years old, they pop you not in daycare. It's full-blown school. Wow. When I left Germany, I was fluent in German, but of course I lost it because I never used it. But when we moved back to the States, we moved to Alabama and my dad was stationed at Redstone Arsenal and I was two grade levels ahead of my classmates at the local school there. So I never really had to study and just kind of sailed through school, hating it every step of the way um, because I was kind of an outsider and, you know. Yeah. So wait for one second. So you were stationed in Germany, obviously, because your dad was in the service, yes. right? Mm -hmm. How long were you there? Were you there through like grade school or were you there? Did you come back to the States uh, like at five or six or how long? I was, I was eight, almost nine when we moved back. So oh, yeah. I, 
yeah, so I started grade school there. And then when we moved to Huntsville, I was still in grade school and was getting ready to go into junior high. So you really started your life as a German, really. I mean, that yeah. was your foundation. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. When you moved back, did you miss it? Were you were you in I culture did. shock? I was in big time culture shock because in Alabama, there were a lot of race riots at that time. And I grew up multicultural. I lived on an army base with, you know, um, we, my best friend was Mexican. One of them was Mexican. The other one was black. And that's what I knew there was no race on that, the army base. We were all just kids. And then I moved to Alabama and I, my second day at school there, a bunch of girls jumped me. Um, and beat the mess out of me because I had befriended a black girl and that was unheard of. You couldn't do that. So it made me, it kind of set a tone for me and I felt like an outsider from Jump Street. And that's what made me turn to my two passions. Well, I have three, but music and animals and roller skating. But anyway, but music and animals, you know, that's the music is, I jokingly say I wrapped it around me like a blanket. And, you know, I marching band was I was in marching band and concert band all through school, got to march in President Carter's inaugural. Wow. Uh, what was your yeah. instrument? Uh, I played clarinet during marching season and oboe in concert season. Look at you. See, this is one of my favorite things about this interview is that I always learn things. And and we had the, the I had the honor of sitting in your office for quite a while and chatting with you about a whole slew of things when I was out there. But like, you know, this didn't come up and I love knowing that. Um, so initially music at the time, what was something that you were listening to that gave you comfort at the time? I will tell you, and to this day, he's still my favorite songwriter ever, Paul Williams. Mm. And a lot of people don't, really know him but he wrote all of the the hits for the carpenters back in the 70s and he wrote the love boat theme he wrote evergreen for barbara streisand but i saw when i was in i guess i probably was about 12 and he was the same height as me so don't tell him that but um i saw a movie called phantom of the paradise that he did all the music for and his brother was one of the i think co-producers but anyway it was a Brian De Palma film, and I fell in love with that movie, and I was obsessed with Paul Williams and his songwriting, and I would sit for hours and read the the liner notes and the credits and just absorb everything about him, and that this this was why I'm, while my sister was listening to, you know, Black Sabbath and, you know, all that, that kind of stuff, Led Zeppelin, you know, deep purple. And I'm in my bedroom listening to, you know, Paul Williams. So I was the nerdy, not cool kid. And, um, but that's where it started was it went from Paul Williams to the first time I saw females that to me were musical role models was Anna Nancy Wilson of heart. Oh my gosh. And they're still role models. I am obsessed with them. They, they truly changed my life because I had a really bad thing happen in 1978 that I survived and I really shouldn't be sitting in front of you, but I did. And um, my best friends surprised me and they got tickets and passes to see Hart. And it was the, the dog and butterfly tour. And we got to meet them and Ann and Nancy Wilson changed me forever. I was not outgoing. I was very shy. And the advice they gave me set me on the path that led me to where I'm at right now. 
So I, I obviously have two follow-up questions, and you do not in any way have to answer this if you don't feel comfortable. <laughs> One, do you mind me asking what the terrible thing was? And two, what was the advice they gave you? And three, I really have three questions. And three, had you um, heard of them before you went to see them live? Like, were you a oh, fan absolutely. prior? First of all, I was a huge fan of theirs. Um, and the advice they gave, I had never heard a woman, I mean, in Alabama, you pretty much as a female back in the seventies, you know, you kind of needed to know your place and people that were outspoken like me and had opinions were labeled, you know, um, and were you I kind mean, of like I, a difficult girl or a, a bitch well, or were you just a pain in the butt for being, I was a pain in the butt because yeah. I was yeah. constantly asking questions, asking why. You know, well, you need to do this. Why? Well, that's just the way it's always been done. Well, that doesn't make sense to Why? me. Why? Yeah. So, so meeting Ann and Nancy Wilson, Ann Wilson walked over to me. And to answer your question about the bad thing that happened, um, I was abducted, raped, and left for dead. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, and Juanita. Yeah, it was it was really bad. And I truly don't know how I lived because they dumped me 45 miles from where I lived. And, um, but so uh, first of all, I am so very sorry that happened to you. Second of all, I am in complete shock and awe because anybody who's ever crossed paths with you, I mean, the first thing that gleans off of you is just your strength and your poise and your confidence and your you're just such, I mean, this is what I wrote you in my email. I'm like, I want so badly to have as many badass women on here as I possibly can. And you were like at the forefront of my mind of just like badass Aww. awesomeness. And I can't even fathom what kind of strength and like capability to overcome something like that and turn into this woman who you are that nobody would ever guess the kind of trauma you've been through. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, I mean, you have a choice when you go through something like that. Now, I will tell you that there were some dark days. Um, I kind of didn't want to live. Yeah. And, and I felt like I didn't matter. And that's what Anna Nancy Wilson made me feel like I mattered. And, and it, you know, to this day, if I feel like someone is treating me in a way that I don't matter, it'll trigger me. But Ann Wilson walked up to me. We were, they actually were supposed to be doing a radio meet and greet thing. And we were standing in the hallway and these doors opened in front of me and out walks Ann Wilson. And this was in 1978, September of 1978. She's head to toe, black leather catsuit, <laughs> looking badass. And she walks out and she comes over and starts talking to us. And I was so, so, so nervous. And back then I would not look people in the eye. I kept my head down because I just was ashamed of everything well, about me. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure there's a whole lot of justifiable reasons there. Well, and this was literally two weeks after I had, and I hid all that. Nobody knew I had been through any of that. My mom thought I'd felt fallen off the horse because they broke my cheek. I had cracked ribs and my, I lied to my mother because I was so ashamed because I thought I had done this. I was walking home from babysitting and a van was following me. And this van, I knew my spidey senses went off and I knew something bad. I dropped my school books because I, the place I babysat was like six houses down from my house. 
And I dropped my school books and went to running. And that was the last thing I remembered. They hit me over the head with a crowbar or something. And that was all I remembered at that point. So I truly, you know, I was so ashamed. And and back then, a lot of women didn't report rape because you were blamed. Right. And I knew, I mean, we had had some girls at the high school I went to that had um, been raped and they ended up, turned. the people turned on them and said they had done something. And it just, it traumatized me. So I was so afraid. I just kept saying, nobody can find out about this. Nobody can find out about this. And these people knew me because they threw me out across a barbed wire fence in front of my one of my dear friend's grandmother's house that was up in Pulaski, Tennessee, which was way far away from Huntsville. So these people knew me. And to this day, I think I know who they were. They were friends of my sisters, my older sister who passed away. And um, so anyway, all of that to say, I would not look people in the eye. Ann Wilson walks out. I'm standing right there. She talks to my friend, Kathy. She talks to my friend, Jeannie. Then she gets to me and I've got my head down and the door next to her opens and Ann, uh, Nancy Wilson walks out and she's got her dog under her arm. And, you know, I love animals. So I, I look up and see the dog and Nancy comes over and she goes, oh, you must be Juanita. It's nice to meet you. And we start talking and I'm just shaking so hard because here are two positive female role models right in front of me. And Ann is talking to my friends. And when it's time for them to go, she walks up to me and she says, hey, so you guys don't look like the rest of the girls here. Can you tell me, I mean, what it's like being you here in Huntsville? And I said, well, honestly, our friends are already picking out their gingham curtains and their boyfriends and they want to start having kids. My friends here, one plays bass, one sings, they're in an all-female band. And, you know, I booked them and I said that, you know, that's we're we're just different. And she said, you be you, you be proud of who you are. And Nancy takes her finger and puts it under my chin and she lifts my chin up and she said, and Juanita, you have beautiful blue eyes. Look people in the eyes when they're talking to you. And then she touched my hair and she says, oh, and your hair, it would look so great if it was perm like mine. And I'm just going, okay, okay. And then Ann Wilson gave me a piece of advice. In addition to me being who I was and being proud of that. And she said, if someone doesn't like who you are, fuck them. And yes. I've never heard a woman say that word. And I just went, oh, I said, okay. And literally the next day I called my hairdresser. I got my hair permed and they, I mattered to them and yeah. they cared and they emboldened me. My mother was afraid to embolden me because I was already, you know, a handful She's like, I already, so, I already gave birth to this yeah. firecracker. I don't need to give her any more fuel. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I started working at a pet store at 13 years old because I wanted to buy a pony, you know. And so animals and music have always played a really important part of my life. And all I ever wanted to do was somehow be in the music industry. So that and was going to be my next question is that you were you had mentioned like, you know, in, in your you know, youthful teen years or what have you, you're like, I was already booking friends. Did you yourself have any desire? And that's what you had just said. I just wanted to somehow be in the music industry. Did you think you would be an artist or did you no. just, no, that wasn't calling I wanted you. To, I wanted to be on the administrative side. I knew from, I just had this love of all things administrative 
and this happened because my friend, my best friend, Lisa Drake's mother, who I to this day adore, they, she took us to work with her one night because she had to pick up something. I just walked in and saw the typewriter and all the, the accoutrement of her office and was just like, oh my God, this is so cool. Yeah. And she worked for, you know, a defense contractor. So it was just awesome. She was such an amazing lady and she really inspired me to want to be that. But I knew I didn't want to just do normal work. I wanted to be in the music industry somehow. So, you know, I, I started contacting radio stations and then I would contact the bands that I liked and say, hey, I, you know, I'll help you run your fan club or I'll do this or I'll do that. None of that ever panned out. But the other part of that was I always seemed to be drawn to men in the music industry as far as partners. Right. Namely, guitar players. I've been married to two guitar players. <laughs> Those so, rascals. Um, I know, right? <laughs> that breed of man. <laughs> I know. So my my husband, Ian, and I moved to Nashville in 1990. He was a guitar player. Now, wait, I want to stop you just for one second, because I'm sure. just curious. You were, when you came back from Germany, you were in Alabama. At any point, did your family move to Tennessee? No. No. Okay. We, so we stayed in Alabama. My Now, all of my grandparents and aunts and uncles and various and sundry relatives lived still lived in the Crossville area got it so we would come up visiting and I just I loved Tennessee I didn't know how I was going to get back here but I wanted to be back in Tennessee because I just loved the land here and and I found out that I'm the like great 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 granddaughter of John Sevier who was the first governor of Tennessee oh my gosh so I'm Tennessee royalty (laughs) yeah you are Oh my gosh, I love it. I bet that was like when you figured that out. Did you do like an ancestry.com or something like that? Yeah, my like that? dad, my dad started going to these reunions in Sevierville, the Copeland family reunion. And that's how he found out. This was way before ancestry.com and all that. And one of our cousins had done the genealogy and and traced it all back and gave us this little like, you know like a mimeographed, if you remember that stuff, like this book that they had made and it was handwritten and it was really cool. But yeah, John Sevier. That's amazing. You are Tennessee royalty. And that's so fitting because you are so royal in your own right. (laughs) So your first husband was Ian, you said? Yeah, Ian Duthie. Yeah. Okay. And he was a guitar player, I take it. Guitar player, yeah. (laughs) Walker, big, long. Yeah, I always like the guys with the long hair. (laughs) But um, beautiful man. I still love him to this day. He's an amazing human. But we moved here in 1990. Um, I went to work at Mercury Records, started as a receptionist. He went to work at Warner Brothers, started Warner Brothers Records, starting in the mailroom. And, um, that's how we both started. And I never in a million years, it was, I jokingly say, I feel like the Forrest Gump of country music because, you know. You've kind of been I, attached to things all the way well, around in different yeah, ways. Because I started at Mercury and we signed uh, a Canadian young lady named Mylene who turned out to be Shania. And then we, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus. So I got to ride those waves with Billy Ray and Shania and got to be a part of country music history. And that's, you know, I've got plaques on my walls from them. um, And it just blew me away. And then, you know, so I was at Mercury for quite a few years. And then when I left Mercury, I came here to Sound Emporium to work for Garth Fundus. He owned the studio. He started here in 71 as a gopher. And then he bought the studio in 91. 
And of course, he had all of his success with Trisha Yearwood and Keith Whitley and Sugarland. And you I know, love Barry how you're Cohen. just mentioning so casually like these <laughs> legendary names. It's amazing, <laughs> and and it's so much fun to because for your reality, it is just these you know cute Canadian who comes in and is oh by the way Shania Twain and oh you know this woman who kind of cooks well oh Trisha Yearwood yeah <laughs> yeah 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 that that lady. But so you know so I've got to to really witness history, and then as I was you know, the operations manager for a label called Almo Sounds. It was run out of the Sound Emporium originally, and it was owned by Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss, who owned A&M Records. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So there you go. There you you go. In the music industry, people either wanted to be on that label if they were a musician, or they wanted to work for Herb and Jerry if they were like me, because they are the quintessential record guys. They got it. They're amazing humans. And it was truly the pinnacle of my career until 2006, when at that point, I was the studio manager here for Garth. And we booked a little fella named Robert Plant. (laughs) I love your life so much. And booked Robert and Allison, you know, T-Bone Burnett was producing yeah, the Raising Sand Project. Yeah, that and little, it was very hush-hush. That little album that did nothing that except album. win a, every Grammy ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, every Grammy ever. And so we were not able to talk about it, though, when, it, when they were recording. And every day, Robert Plant would walk in my office and he would say, Oh, pretty love, could you please print these lyrics for me? And he would give me the name of the song that they were doing that day. And I'd print him lyrics. And... Every day he would come in my office and say something sweet or he was just so nice. And that was so working for Herb and Jerry at that point. Well, OK, so meeting Ann and Nancy, that was pinnacle. Then there you go. Working for Herb and Jerry. Um, OK, then. Yeah. And then Robert Plant. Oh, so, you know, it's just like, holy cow. And that's why I say like Forrest Gump. And I never in a million years would have dreamed that this would be my life. And I mean, we've worked here with Merle Haggard. My dad loved Merle Haggard. You know, Dolly Parton's worked here. You know, you name them, they've worked here. And and then I get to witness things like Alabama Shakes. When no one knew who they were, they were here recording. They recorded here six different two-week spans when they did Sound and Color. And, you know, to get called in and and the the client say, hey, I want you to hear this, which is what Robert would do. I don't go in the rooms because I represent business. You know, I'm the business person. So unless you invite me into that room, I don't go in there because that's sacred. That's sacred space where people are creating and I don't want them to get harshed out by the, you know, the businesswoman. Well, and to be Uh, frank, I think that's also why people adore you so much because you have so much respect for the creative process and you make, and I can say this as somebody who's recorded in your studio, you literally go above and beyond with the smallest details to make the studio environment feel like an extension of home. Like, I mean, well, and absolutely because, and it takes a woman's touch. I will tell you that. (laughs) And anyone, Garth Fundus will tell you that, you know, um, it's just, We just, women are nurturers, not that men aren't, but I know how sacred it is to record here. We make art here. I mean, oh my gosh, it's going to live beyond my years, your years. And this is art. And I, it is so very sacred. And just to add to how sacred it is, you know, we've been here now 50, we were built in 1969. So, you know, we're coming up on 52 years. 
And I have just recently, it's taken nine years to complete, but we have a searchable database that's on our website. Yes, I just saw this. This is so exciting. Yeah. And you can put in a name of anybody, Candace Devine, and whatever they've recorded here will show up. Now, back in the day, it was kind of hard because who they didn't really keep good notes like I do. Um, and they wouldn't like whoever booked this. It, it could be someone ahead of a label booked this session. That's who they would put in there. And it could have been for David Cassidy. It could have been for Waylon and Willie. You know, right. you just didn't know because they would just write down the name of the person. So it's it's a work in progress, but it went live two weeks ago. And I'm so proud of it because there's not another one like it in the world. It's absolutely incredible. And not to mention, not only have you had these legendary people through your studio, the studio itself is incredible. Like the the studio, was it Studio A that's the big studio? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That room is such magic when you walk in, all the way down to the smaller studios. Each setting in that space is so magical. It's It's like shocking to think that there couldn't just be, you know, unicorn music made every single time because... It's incredible. Well, it's funny you say that because Cowboy Jack Clement was the one who he moved here into a house that was built in the 30s. And that's what our B room is. Uh, He turned it into a studio. And then in 91, Garth added the front space, which was where my offices and now our G and Z studios are. The A studio was built in 69. But Cowboy Jack would tell people that this is the magic studio. This is where magic happens. And I have try to pay homage to him and continue his legacy here because he was such an eclectic, unique, amazing human. And I wanted to continue his tradition because, you know, we're the oldest studio left standing. You know, Studio A is still here, but it was Chet Atkins' private studio that was built before this one, but it didn't go public until after we were built. Right. Um, And a lot of them are being knocked down for condos and, um, I've got DNA in these walls. And as long as there's a breath in my body, this place is going to still be standing and making art. So let me ask you about that, because that's such an interesting point and so true. In a world of digitizing everything and where people are starting to make records at home because they can, the, the software is on their computer. How is that affecting studios as a whole? And how are you guys staying how are you staying this legendary studio afloat? Like, how do you keep that alive when, you know, so many people are turning other directions? Even though, like, myself, personally, nothing's more inspiring than walking into some legendary studio. I feel like you do go, I'm going to make a hit record because you're in a space that so many hit records have been made. How do you Well, that's a that? great point. Yeah. That is a great point, Candace, And that's why people come here. You know, yes, they're taken care of. Yes, we have amazing crew. We have amazing gear. And we have that four-letter word, vibe. Mm -hmm. But people don't, you know, I would guess probably 10 years ago, um, people were starting to be concerned and say, oh my gosh, now everyone can record at home. They're not going to need a studio. That's not true. You cannot track an entire band in an open room unless you're in a studio like this. And there's only a few of them left that have the big giant rooms where you could do tracking with everybody with nothing, you know, bogoed off, where everybody is in the same room. And that's why our A room is so magical is there's no bleed. You can set up a guitar player, a drummer. I know, it's amazing, it's so amazing. And there's no bleed. So that's why it's magic. But, you know, you think about too, yes, people can record at home. And there are a lot of producers and engineers that have home studios, but it takes them out of being connected to the community. 
And there's still nothing like that experience. And that's kind of what you get when you walk through these doors. It is an experience. And you're taking in the DNA of all of the artists that were there before you. And Brittany Howard said it best. She said that there was mojo in that A room, good mojo. And that's what you can't manufacture. It is there organically. And people have an emotional attachment to places like this because of the history and because of what we've done, but also because of what we will do in the future. So our year, the the year of COVID has actually been one of our busiest years ever. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, people can't tour, so they want to record. So it actually, we ended the year just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is, that we're ending the year so well. And we started, we hit the ground running, but I will tell you this, um, we've been in the black for the last 10 years. And I don't know, and I, I don't mean that in a braggy, braggy way, but just in a, we're keeping busy. We're keeping people alive. And, and we and in a good business kind of way. It's just when you yes. when you are doing everything that we've just been talking about, when it has the good mojo, when you have somebody welcoming you in that makes you feel like family, when all the little details are thought of, when the room is something that you can let yourself go and bring the most authentic spirit of your music to its feet. You're absolutely right. In my opinion, I beg to differ that there's many places that could one compete and two, even if it's not a competition, can offer the same thing, you know, um, and and I think that's so much of what makes it special. But that also comes from the helm. I mean, that's a trickle down effect right there, which makes me well, want to get back to you a little bit. So as you came in and you were working, how did you start to bring yourself up kind of through the ranks? I mean, well, Garth owned the studio. From I worked for him from 95 in some capacity until 2011 when he sold the studio. In 2010, he started due diligence with a a gentleman named George Shin. George wanted to buy the studio for um, his son, who was a musician. Wow, that must be nice. Nobody ever offered me that. (laughs) Like, hey, can I just buy you this legendary studio? (laughs) Yeah, he's he's got lots of money. He used to own the Charlotte Hornets. So he has... Lots of, lots of money. He's doing fine. Um, yeah, he's doing fine. And he wanted to buy the studio for his one son that was a musician. And then something went awry. But long story short, they brought in two people to manage this. So when Garth sold the studio, they just kept me as the accountant. And I was only part time. So for two years, I would work full time at the musicians union in the recording department from nine to four. And then I would come over here at 4.30 and do my invoicing and, you know, just do the accounting stuff. And the fellas that they brought in to manage it, it took them nine months and it was not successful. And Mr. Shin was very upset and not happy. And his um, attorney, actually, he was the person that I dealt with the most. I went to him and said, you need to audit that studio. And he goes, you're an accountant and you're telling me I need to audit? I said, yes. And the auditor... Um, one of the big five firms here in town sat with me for two and a half hours and her recommendation to Mr. Shin was you need to hire her back to run that studio again because she knows what it takes. 
All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Dog Guitars, located at 141 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Grey Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, Guild, and Reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Grey Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. So Mr. Shin approached me several times and I told him no. <laughs> Why? Why did you tell him no? Because the two people he had here ah. uh, are people that I work with in the business and I didn't want to fire them. And, um, you know, it just wouldn't have been good karma. So I told him. And the third time he was like, you know, young lady, people don't tell me no. And I said, well, you don't know me then. <laughs> I said, uh, here's the deal, Mr. Shin. Um, here's what you need to do for me to consider working for you. You need to fire the two fellas that you hired to manage the place. You need to give me the resources I need and you need to trust me and get out of my way. Amen. And he said, nobody talks to me like that, but I like it and we're on. So he hired me um, much less than what the male person was making. I might add. Oh, that's such bull. It was, but I told him, I said, look, I don't have a problem showing you what I can do. Just stand back. And we were so far in the hole when I came back. But by the end of 2012, we were almost flush by when we hit the ground running in 2013. It was amazing. And then in 2016, he made me part owner, which I was just, well, it was at the end of 2015. Um, his wife at the time really loved the studio, loved what I had done. And they truly gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. And I started with each room the b room i started with that first redid everything redid all of the interior redecorated vibed it all up the bathrooms the a room then i turned two of these offices back here into mix overdub rooms and we've just redone every inch of this studio my way what i thought needed to be and they trust me and and did that so his wife wanted to reward me for that and we were literally, every year was better than the year before. And it was just amazing. And then in 2016, he made me part owner. At the end of 2016, um, his attorney met with me and said, uh, George has gifted the studio to Lipscomb University. And I just, I had to fight back tears. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, that means Lipscomb University will own the studio. And it was a punch in the gut. After he left, I sobbed hysterically for an hour because I truly felt like 2016 had been the best year of my life. I had worked so hard for this. The music community was so excited that I was part owner. Yeah. And um, then to have it taken away from me was, it was really hard. But Lipscomb has been amazing. Um, they met with me immediately. They did not know I was part owner. That was a little bit of a shock, but they met with me and assured me that they would take care of me, take care of the studio and take care of my staff. And I, I told them I will sign over my portion, which I'm not going to go into the details of, of the threats that made me kind of not have a choice, but Lipscomb has been nothing but great. And I told them I would agree 
to sign over my portion of the ownership of the business if they would agree publicly to protect the legacy of this studio, protect the history, let it remain what it is, which is a vibrant professional commercial recording studio. I didn't want to see it turn into classrooms or event center no. or any other any other crap like that. But they have been amazing. And they basically, they own the building. I own the vibe. And I they let me keep this place booked. And like I said, every year is better than the year before. And they have trusted me with this precious, precious place. And it has worked out well for both parties because the students now have a real learning environment. This isn't isn't something on a screen. It isn't a Zoom class. They can come here and be part of a legendary studio. And we've had, last month, we had six different student projects. And usually it's on the weekends because that's when they're able to do their work. But they got to do their, their senior projects here. And they got to do it in a working live recording studio, not something that's a simulator or, you know, a, a, out of a book or something that's built into part of the school. It is truly the best gift that that university ever could have received. I have to tell you, I, I appreciate that so much because I, I have this conversation often with people with, with the modern technological age. So, in my opinion, so many historical buildings and so much history in general is being knocked down for exactly like you said earlier, condos. You're in prime real yeah. estate. You're in Music City and you've had this legendary, you know, wouldn't it be great to package it as like this historic, historic studio gone condo, you know, and you can right. live in. And and it it's so... Um, it's, it's just so frustrating to me that people don't hold weight in the value of something that has been, that has had the soul of so much history in it. Music is history. It's the one thing, much like you also just said, we can leave behind for generations upon generations upon generations. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, fifth time down the road children will be able to hear the voices of their ancestors and whatever capability. And to just knock it down and pretend like it wasn't a big deal is like the most horrifying thing to me ever. And I just love that you fought for that and said, it's not, it's not even okay for you to say, oh, sure. I need you to publicly state <laughs> that I will honor the legacy of this building, the work of the people from within this building, and make sure that it sticks around to do its job for future generations. I mean, I can't think of a more giving human being for, well, to fight and for something I like been, that. I could have been very bitter. And because of what happened when everything went down, um, I had to sit here with a smile on my face and look at my clients and promise them that nothing was going to change because, you know, we've got clients that are very emotionally attached to this studio and, you know, we're very liberal. And when I, when Lipscomb first came on the scene, I had a meeting with him and I said, you're entering the land of hookers and blow. <laughs> I, I'm like, you know, this is completely different from what you're doing down the street because it's a church of Christ school. So of course I had a lot of my clients that were scared to death. And they were like, oh, my God, are they going to change it? Are they going to make you do this? I said, no, they have promised me. And my boss is such an amazing man. His name's Daryl Duncan. He's the senior VP of finance over there. And my boss at the time was also Danny Taylor, who was the former CFO. They got it. Danny plays harmonica 
And I got to sneak him in here and let him meet John Popper of Blues Traveler. So, you know, he got it and he understood. And it was so important. I truly think if I wouldn't have had those men in my corner, it could have had a different outcome because, you know, they didn't know what to think of me. I am not a Church of Christ woman. I don't get pushed around. I'm very outspoken. And but I'm respectful until it's time. You know, I give respect. Is, and I'm nice until it's time not to be nice. But the only way I've survived in this business as a woman is to be tough. And you can call me a bitch all day long, but this place, my integrity is second to none. There is no one in this town that can say that I've done anything backbiting or hand, you know sideways. No, I'm very transparent. What you see is what you get. Um, it works for some people and it doesn't for others. And the ones that it doesn't work for, Sorry. Yeah, there's the door. Yeah, because (laughs) I'm not I'm an acquired taste. I'm not right for everybody. And I don't try to be, you know, and I've I've turned folks down that wanted to come work here. If their if their attitude wasn't right, if they didn't respect the building, if they didn't respect the history and they thought they were going to come in here and be jackasses, I'll show them the door. You know, this is a place that you need to be respectful of. And two, if you're not I absolutely love that about you. I mean, I think I love that about you as much as I love everything else about you, Um, which is why the first day I met you, I was like, and she's my favorite. Um, I have a question for you, though, because you're a big fancy pants, and I'm still going to call you part owner of the studio because in my mind, you are, if not the full owner, because you've made it what it is in the current setting. Well, Um, my boss tells people she owns the vibe. You know, she owns the vibe. And... I'll take it. <laughs> Amen. I do have a question for you, though, because you get the, I think one of the perks of being in your position is you, whether you mean to or not, you are in the circles of all the fancy celebs who are there. So my question would be like all these, you know, you've turned and grown into this mogul. Have you ever crossed paths with the Heart Sisters again? Do they have any idea of what an impact they've had on your life and who you've become? It's funny you mentioned that. Um, if if you would have told the 16-year-old me that I would have the original guitar player, Roger Fisher of Heart, has become a dear friend of mine because he came and did a studio tour. And he actually just worked on a record here with a band that he was working on called Born to Fly. And when they came to do the studio tour a couple of years ago, um, Roger Fisher and his brother, Michael, Michael Fisher was Hart's manager. And he's the, the person that, um, Ann Wilson wrote the song magic man about. Yeah. So, no way! Yes, Oh my gosh. Yes. I love knowing that. Yeah. Because Ann was dating Michael and Nancy was dating Roger. So the Wilson sisters were dating the Fisher brothers. <laughs> so, you know, they were living in, in Vancouver and writing all these amazing love songs. So you fast forward to a couple years ago, and um, one of my clients called me and said, hey, um, a friend of mine is going to be coming through town. He wants to tour some studios. I'm going to send him your way. I said, okay, cool. What's his name? He said, Roger Fisher. And I sat there for a minute after I swallowed my tongue, and I said, what? He said, Roger Fisher, you know, from heart. I said, "Uh, uh, yeah. I said, "Uh, okay. And I didn't say anything else. So. I, like six months before that, on eBay, I had bid and won Roger's original tour jacket from the Dog and Butterfly tour, the the tour I saw that changed my life. 
And I brought it to work that day and I had it hanging on my door and Roger came in and did the studio tour and they were filming something. And I don't know what they were filming, but his brother, Michael, had the, the video camera. And when he walked in my office, he saw his jacket. And he went, my jacket, because it has his name on it and everything. I said, oh, so you're going to authenticate that's your jacket. And he goes, oh, yes, that's my jacket. He said, but it didn't fit me anymore. I said, nobody did <laughs> mine. So I told him the story of meeting Ann and Nancy. And I'm going to see if I can show you this. I don't know if it'll. And just for the people listening, I just, I'm going to explain for the people listening. Yeah. Juanita is also a beautiful art piece because she has tattoos down her arms. No, you told me everyone means something special, right? Every single one has deep meaning to people in your life or experience, right? And moments in your life that you've. Well, that one, the one that's the heart with the music notes on it, that. When Nancy Wilson signs a picture, she signs it with a heart with wings on it. And so I have a heart with wings that is a music note. And I was showing Michael Fisher that, and I noticed him take a picture of it. And we went to lunch and we're sitting at lunch and his phone rings and he said, I've got to take this. And I said, oh, no problem. So he's talking and he goes, okay, I'll tell her. And he had sent the picture of my tattoo to Ann Wilson. And Michael and Ann were still really good friends. Well, two weeks from then, Hart was going to be here on their tour that year. And this was in 2019, I believe. And I was just like, oh, my God. And he told Ann the whole story of how I had survived something and, and what they had done and how it saved my life, literally. And Ann Wilson put me on the VIP list. And there was a a kerfuffle that happened a few weeks before with Ann's husband and Nancy's sons, which created a rift in the band. So when they were here in Nashville, they were not doing any private meet and greets. They were only doing like the VIP meet and greet where it's like a cattle call. So Ann's assistant told me to stand at the back of the line. She said, you've got to see her. So I was the last person in line and you literally had 30 seconds and they sat you between these you know, Ann and Nancy on a, um, like a, a bench and a stool. And you had 30 seconds to say whatever you needed to say. And I leaned over to Ann and of course, Nancy's giving me the side eye and cheap trick was playing because they were the other opening band. So it's re- I'm yelling in her ear. I'm Michael's friend Juanita. And she grabbed me and hugged me. And she says, Oh my God, Juanita, I'm so sorry that we didn't get to spend more time. I said, I'm trying not to get emotional. I said, thank you for making me the woman I am today. And at that point, I was, no, it was 2016 because I was a studio owner. I said, I'm the only female studio owner in Nashville, thanks to you. You know, you, nobody, I didn't matter to anybody and you made me feel like I mattered. Oh my gosh, it's making me cry too. (laughs) So I did get to tell her, um, I hope to one day get to tell her and Nancy under better circumstances, but um, they will always, always have a very special place in my heart. No matter what they put out, I buy it. You know, it doesn't matter if I like it or not. I buy it because they are, they are part of what made me who I am today. Oh my gosh. I, my mind is blown on so many levels. I didn't expect to cry today. I was like, oh my God. Um, I have to ask you because it's, it's such a large part of who you are. And I want to make sure that anybody listening really understands the full scope of you, at least in the direction that I do. You have mentioned it a couple times that you're an animal person. 
Yes. But let's talk about what an animal person you are and and what great work you do and how many little lives you save and rescue and and all of the wonderful things. Because I think that is such a a fitting element of the energy you bring to your studio as well, the compassion and the care and the diligence and the nurture. Um, Tell me a little bit about your journey with animals. All right. Um, As a kid, you know, like I said, when we moved to Alabama, I, I had a hard time and animals were my refuge. And like I said, when I was 13 years old, all I wanted was a pony and I saved the money and bought a pony and, um, animals always were my safe place. And so I started at age eight years old when, uh, the first year we were in Alabama, I saw their dog pound there, which was disgusting. And it was called a dog pound. It was just gross. And I had a bad interaction with the people there. And I went to my counselor at school and said, I want to make them build a new dog pound. It wasn't called an animal shelter at that time. It was called a dog pound. And I had this amazing counselor at school. And she sent me to one of the councilmen who was named Sid Socher. I'll never forget it. And he told me what to do. He told me to get a um, a petition, and if I had 5,000 signatures, they would go before the council and they would vote on it, and, you know, most likely would happen, and that's what I did. I went to the malls. Back then, malls were a big deal, and I bugged everybody. Eight years old, wouldn't take no for an answer, and I got 5,000 signatures, and we put it before the city council, and they built a new animal shelter. That was my first, you know, running my mouth for animals, and it never stopped. And when I moved to Tennessee, all I wanted was a small farm that I could rescue animals and, you know, pay it forward because I do feel I've been so blessed in my life. Yes, I've had bad things happen, but it's just part of who I am. And I don't dwell in that negative place. So because I'm so blessed, I pay it forward and I volunteer for Animal Rescue Corps. And um, they have a facility here in Lebanon, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. And I go there every time they do a confiscation and and help these beautiful animals. Um, I also donate to Sea Shepherd because I believe so much in what they do because I love the ocean. And snorkeling is my, you know, it's how I recharge my batteries, which is why this ear thing is really taking a toll on me because I can't fly and I can't snorkel. Um, But animals have always played an important part. And I have what's called a micro sanctuary. I have four acres with eight rescued potbelly pigs, four rescued rabbits, three rescued dogs, and a couple of barn kitties. I love it. I absolutely love it. And when you're in your office, you see pictures of your of your sweet animals, which I love too, because you keep them there for everyone to enjoy and yourself. Yes. Um You're just such a good person, Juanita. You're such a special spirit. And I'm so honored and thankful that you were willing to come be on my podcast. And I'm really sorry for those who are listening as well. Juanita, it took us a little while to schedule this because her ear has been, I don't even know exactly, but you've been having ear trauma. Well, I had surgery back in um, last year. um, I had COVID and I was one of the lucky ones that didn't really have any issues other than loss of taste and smell. But a month after I had COVID, I've always had ear issues, and it came from having my eardrum busted and my nose broken by a really mean person I dated. But anyway, I've had problems my whole life. And after I had COVID, all of a sudden, I started having horrific pain and pressure in my ears and went to a specialist at Vanderbilt. And he said I had a tumor behind my eardrum called a cholesteatoma. It needed to be removed, and my eardrum was laying on my ear bones. So they needed to rebuild my eardrum, remove the tumor, 
But what he didn't tell me is they take your ear off your head to do that. I feel like that's a detail that should be mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, you think? So they cut your ear off and flip it over on the side of your head. And to get in there, they had to remove two pieces of my skull to do this surgery. And it you're only supposed to have the fullness and pressure for like two weeks. It's going on three months. And every day it feels like my eardrum's about to rupture. So I go back Thursday and I'm hoping that he's going to have an answer for me because it's been torturous. I can't, I can't hear out of that ear very well. The, the pain and pressure and fullness in there just makes me nonstop. If I'm not busy at work, I want to cry because it's just so much. And I've learned how to compartmentalize. I learned that a long time ago in my life. And so I've got that ear stuff in one compartment. Otherwise, I mean, people have committed suicide over this very issue. And what I, the surgery I had is called a tympanoid mastoidectomy. Big old long word. And it's awful. I would not wish, wish this on my worst enemy. It's been awful. So... I would like to point out, not only are you the most loving and most compassionate and positive person, you have the strength of a fucking T-Rex. Like, I don't... <laughs> that's that's my hillbilly stock right there. You know, that's what comes from being a hillbilly. <laughs> I mean, woman, you are this... You're Wonder Woman. Like, and I love how you're just like, if I'm not keeping myself busy at work, it just, it makes me want to, you know sob but here you are at work and talking to me and everybody else and still being a badass I mean I I I don't even know I wish we could bottle your capabilities because Ah! the world would be a lot better if you were running it (laughs) well I will tell you this Candace you are part of our family and you know we don't have clients here we have studio family and you know you may walk in the door a client but when you leave here you're family and that's That comes, that's instilled from my mother. My mother was the most amazing, loving woman on the planet. And much to her dismay, because people kind of took advantage of her. And I learned from her how to be loving and giving, but also draw that line, you know, have some boundaries and not be afraid to speak up. It took me years and years to get there, but I'm very happy with who I am and happy in my own skin. And, you know, I believe in paying it forward and You know, and in addition to my animal stuff, I also volunteer for hospice because I lost my mom and my dad uh, within a year of each other. And both of them were on hospice care. And I vowed, get me through this. And I want to help others who are where I'm at right now. Because again, I believe in paying it forward. You know, it's the karma thing. Yeah. And I'm blessed. And yeah, I've got bad things going on, but there's way more good. And I've got to pay it forward because I just don't feel good if I don't. Oh my gosh. I love you so much. I really want you to be our president. Um, <laughs> may I ask you a couple questions that sure. I ask everybody? Um, knowing, having had the journey that you've had, and I, I think it's very fair to say some very big highs and some very dark lows, what would you say it would be something you would tell your younger self knowing about life the way you do now? I would tell my younger self that what other people say about you doesn't matter. Amen. Because I mean, I was poor. We were poor. When my dad got out of the service, we were the working poor and my parents went through a bad divorce and we barely had food to eat. And people made fun of me. I was bitten by a dog when I was 12 years old. And I've got a scar here because they had to rebuild my lip. And kids were so mean to me. And, you know, I could have really gotten bitter hearted and, and just ugly about it. 
And it hurts so bad. I mean, kids used to draw pictures of me on the whiteboard at school and say, you couldn't, you know, you're so ugly, a boy wouldn't kiss you, a dog's the one that had to kiss you, and just really mean things. So I would tell my younger self, none of that shit matters. You know, just be who you are, just like Ann Wilson said, be strong and be proud of who you are. And it's a lot more accepting now to be who you are and be different. Back then, if you didn't toe the line, especially in Alabama, you had a tough road to hoe, man. Oh, my gosh. I just want to grab your little young person self and hug you and go, you are the best fucking human ever and wait till you see who you are when you're a grown up. <laughs> um, what would you say to this point has been a career high, but also, and it doesn't have to be the same thing, but what would you say has been a career low specifically? The career low was definitely when Mr. Shin, you know, when I admired the, the ownership of the studio that I had worked so hard for, that was the career low for sure. Um, and I would say the career high was working with Herb and Jerry and Garth for Almo Sounds. It was just, you know, starting a brand new record label. And I got to create all of the policies and procedures. And then they adopted them in New York, in L.A., and in London. What little old me did, and it just blew me away. Oh, honey, there uh, is no little old you. Uh, There's only big diva you. There's only... But I... <laughs> And, you know, there was another person along the way that saw something in me that I didn't. And she's, you know, she did something really cool, too, which is Shania. You know, she and I became really good friends because the people at the label were kind of mean to her when she was first signed because she said she was going to be the country Madonna. And she was another strong willed woman that didn't want to be pushed around. And she was she was slated to be dropped when she met Mutt Lang and I was in publicity and I was the one that physically introduced her to Mutt Lang. And, you know, but she saw something in me too that I didn't realize. And um, she wrote a song that's on her up record called Juanita about a strong woman. And when she was interviewed about it, they said, what does this mean? And she said, everybody has a Juanita. That's the strong part of you. And it blew me away. I'm like, huh, what? <laughs> I, I can't think of anything more apropos. She just knew it. She just <laughs> nailed it on the head. What would you say at this point for you is your definition of success? Do you need to get that? <laughs> no. Someone's at the front desk and needs to get it. But anyway, I'm sorry. What was that question? No, that's okay. Um, you're busy running the world over there, so I don't. I certainly don't want to interrupt. Um, what would you say at this point is your definition of success? And has that word changed for you through your journey? No, um, I would say to me, success is um, having a job that doesn't feel like a job. And, you know, that that horrible cliche that, you know, if you enjoy what you're doing, then you never work a day in your life. I just think that finding what you're passionate about, that's my idea of success. And because I work hard, I work harder probably than most of the people I know. I'm on call 24 seven. And, you know, I have to apologize to people all the time if I have to take a call. But trust me, if Robert Plant texts me, I'm going to answer that. But, you know, so and but I I play as hard as I work. And by that, I mean, like the you know, you have to have a balance. So success to me is finding something that you're passionate about, working your butt off at it. And then from there making sure you've got some pretty healthy boundaries that you put good into if it's, you know, whatever it might be painting or, you know, snorkeling or rescuing animals or whatever, or songwriting or being an artist. But 
you have to have that balance because without that balance, if you don't have the the good and the bad and the yin and the yang, you're just, you're not going to be a, a whole person because it does take the bad to appreciate the good. And I mean, I don't have my parents anymore. I lost my sister. Um, I don't have a whole lot of family left. So sometimes I'll get really down about that and I miss them terribly. And I've had a lot of loss in my life in the, the last couple of years. Um, lost my longtime boyfriend and uh, we were just friends at the time and lost some other friends that were just dear to me. But with every one of them, I have to stay strong in myself and try to focus on the good things. But I, from a little girl, wanted to make a difference. I didn't know how, I didn't know where, but I wanted to make a difference because I think that it's kind of on us that we need to do something good in return when we have something good for us. Juanita, you're my hero. (laughs) You are. You're my hero. I want to bottle you and make everyone drink your potion because especially learning some of the things I've I've been fortunate enough to learn from you today about your past and, and, you know, so often I think it's so easy for people I think sometimes it's easy to resent when someone says happiness is a choice, but I think you're the epitome of of choosing how you decide to dictate your life, even with so much abuse and struggle and loss. You can wake up and go, man, I really got the shit end of the stick and fuck everybody and fuck the world and fuck all the things. I just dropped a lot of fucks in one sentence. That's okay. But... <laughs> It's just but, a word. Yeah, but you're the epitome of like, yeah, I could do that. Or I could get up and go, I can be useful and I can be helpful and I can give my love and my energy to people and by doing so also receive that love and appreciation from people and live a far more enriched life. And knowing that at the end of it, I have done good. I have paid it forward. Someone else is benefiting from my presence on this earth. And God, I just love you so much. I'm so excited you talked to me today. Well, you know, we do have a choice, Candace, every day. And I, I tell my, I have a nephew that struggles with addiction issues. And I tell him every day, you have a choice to be happy or be sad. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. You know, and if you let the dark take over, it can. But you got to be stronger than it. You know what I mean? You got to, you got to, it's not an option in my world. I mean, if I, if I go to that place, it could easily consume me, but I won't. I'm not going to give it that power. Amen. I mean, Church of Juanita, let's all go there. Um, where we, should, wear, we wear roller skates in the Church of Juanita, so, <laughs> just so you know. That's also why everybody needs to go to the Church of Juanita. Way more fun. Way more fun. <laughs> Um, where should we send, I'm going to put all the links in the liner notes, but we should send, where would you like people to be looking up the Sound Emporium or you, or where should we have people? Well, we've got a, there's a a Facebook page for both me and the studio. My Facebook page is private because I had a pretty bad stalker situation back in 2010, 12, excuse me. Yeah. The guy wanted to kill me. That's a whole other (laughs) issue, honey. Yeah. Made the news. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he came to my house seven times and punctured my tires. Crawled up my driveway on his hands and knees with a knife in his hand. No kidding. I've got it on video, by the way. But anyway, that's why my pay, my please, Facebook page is can not. Can you please write public. a memoir? Please. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, it was it was another one of the things I survived that should have killed me because he wanted to. He wanted to put the knife in me. And then why? I, why? You're the best uh, person. Because ever. I didn't want to date him. Oh my God. He was a psychopath and he was a nurse. A nurse, and he worked at a local uh, 
hospital and they would not fire him. I sent them the video of this man crawling up my driveway, puncturing my tires. They would not fire him. They said he was a nice guy and that it had to be something I had done. Want to talk about getting pissed off. I'm so glad you got pissed off. I hope that man is behind bars. Is he behind bars? Never served a day. Never served a day. 11 months, 29 days probation. But I did get his nursing license pulled. And guess what? They did not fire him until Inside Edition contacted me after seeing me on the news and asked me if I wanted to do a piece. The next call they made was to the hospital asking them how they felt about their charge nurse of their cardiac care unit being charged with uh, vandalism and um, violation of an order of protection. He got fired 30 minutes later because they couldn't take the bad publicity. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I, I, yep. And, you know, just to this point, it's just, you know, for as much progress that is being made in equality of all kinds, but I would just like to point out women have had a rough go for a long time. It's time Ooh. that our our opinions and our call outs and our needs are also looked at from Oh hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was making half of what I'm making now, you know, when the men were making what I should be what I should have been making. You know, it's it and it was that way at every record label. It was that way here um until Lipscomb took over. Yeah. So, and thank God for that, even though it was a gut punch at the time, thank God for somebody going, you know what, we want you to keep doing what you're doing. We recognize that it's going well. We will pay you for your value. And hopefully because your behind has been in that seat, you know, in the future, other women who will take over studios or big positions in fancy places. I hope after they hear someone as badass as you, they turn around and go, no, 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 no. You're going to pay me what I need to be paid. Well, exactly. And I do hire female engineers on staff um, because they're they're few and far between. And a woman engineer has to work 10 times harder because I'm telling you, people walk in the room and they immediately assume she's someone's girlfriend or she's someone's publicist or manager. They never off Get, the bat realize that they're the engineer. Yeah. It's or like, give the credit like she's. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's isn't it crazy? crazy? It's crazy to think how far we've come and yet how far we are. Yeah, that's a very bizarre line to look at. But you're it, women like you are changing it. So thank you very I much. Try. <laughs> thank you very much. I absolutely adore you beyond words. I want to come back to Nashville as soon as I can and just sit and have some more tea with you and just talk and talk and talk. Uh, uh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. I loved every second. I will um, let you know when we are going to air this. And you're the absolutely wonder woman of my universe. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much, Candace. It was, a, it was a pleasure to be here today. I look forward to talking to you soon, Juanita. Thank you again. Awesome. Have Thanks a great so much. day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's podcast is brought to you by one of our awesome sponsors, New Belgium. One of their beers, Voodoo Ranger IPA, is a favorite here at the Creative Convergence. Voodoo Ranger IPA is perfectly balanced with notes of guava, mango, and pineapple with a delicately bitter finish. For beer news and occasional mediocre advice, follow at Voodoo Ranger on Twitter and Instagram, where you will hear about what's new and where you can find Voodoo Ranger near you. Voodoo Ranger IPA. Drink responsibly. Live rangerously. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. 
Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. To get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming, your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.